I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. Hey, everybody. It's me and Clay in the Zoom room today. We're going to be talking about what keeps songwriters from succeeding. We've both been around in the music business for about 25 years or longer, and uh, we've seen lots of people come and go. And we want to share with you some things that we think keep people from succeeding as songwriters. Dude, I have seen myself come and go many times. <laughs> I know we've we've continually had to reinvent ourselves uh, to keep to stay in the game. Um, so I've got an outline. I'm going to kind of kick off each little topic, and then Clay and I'll discuss those. Um, as always, we love questions. If you have questions, you can email us, Marty at Songtown.com or Clay at Songtown.com. We'd love for you to check out Songtown which is a worldwide community of songwriters um, learning how to write better songs and to find their tribe. And get your songs so, Exactly. The first thing that, that I, well, I think stops songwriters from succeeding is work ethic. I've seen so many people come in, they get a big opportunity, um, like they get their first publishing deal and they think they've arrived and they kind of stop working very hard and they do a lot of partying and all that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on that, Clay? Well, I agree. I think sometimes the worst thing that can happen when you're starting out is to have big success because then you think it's easy. Um, you know, you and I, we didn't start songwriting till later in life, so we really had to figure out how to work at it on a you know every day, show up. And Really what helped me was um, early on in my career, I got to write with a couple of, you know, Hall of Fame songwriters, and I saw that they were just busting it. They were doing two, sometimes three writing sessions a day. And I was like, geez, I got to get, you know, I got to step up my game. And I think once you learn to do that, where you're just writing as much as you can, if you're working a job, you're writing on your lunch break, you're writing at night after the kids go to sleep, you're the first one up in the house in the morning and you're writing before everyone wakes up. Um, you know, basically you got to do what you got to do and until you're in a position where you can do it full time and, and that yeah. you're just going to have to work. There's no way around it. Yeah, absolutely. My first publisher basically told me if, if I wanted to succeed, I was going to have to work harder than him. Yeah. And he was writing three times a day and I had little kids at home and I couldn't do that. But the, you know, what I finally figured out was I'm just going to have to do everything I can do. I can't, right. I can't necessarily write as many times as he is writing, but I'm going to try to write really smart and work really, really hard so that I come in with great ideas. And like you said, I would do things late at night after everybody was in bed, I'd get up before everybody woke up and try to get some things done. And, you know, so I think just doing what you can, with the time you have is super important because there's other people out there working harder than you and spending more hours at it. So if you want to compete, you got to have a really good work ethic. Yeah. I don't want to get too woo woo, but I think there's something to what you're saying that if the universe sees that you are working and putting as much into it as you can, I think it, you know, it turns the tide and you build momentum and you may not be able to work as many hours as someone else. But if you're doing the most you can, I think a lot of times the universe goes, hey, this dude's working hard. Let's let's give him a break. Absolutely. I've seen that time and time again, you know, 
people that are working a full-time job, but they're also busting it with everything they've got, you know, and then uh, they, they start having success. Um, so that's number one work ethic. Number two is a refusal to change. Um, Clay and I've run into so many people through Songtown who are writing the kinds of songs they grew up on, you know, so we'll listen to their songs and go, Oh, you loved the Eagles, didn't you? And they go, how did you know? Or, you know, you love James Taylor. And we'll go, cause you're writing Eagles songs or you're writing James Taylor songs. And right. so I think, you know, you can't, refuse to change and be successful as a writer long-term exactly. what were your thoughts on that one no i agree and i you know looking back over my career being diversified helped me you know i grew up listening to james taylor and dan fogelberg and the eagles and strumming my acoustic guitar and and writing songs i moved to new york got thrown into the studio world and People coming in my studio were wanting me to build rap and hip hop tracks. And I had to do that. You know, I had to make a living. So I instantly got immersed into that. Then when I came to Nashville, um, people started adding drum loops to what they were doing, you know, that was more like the country and the Eagles and stuff. And so I was better equipped to, to fit into that world. You know, Beautiful Mess, my first number one, we wrote that to a drum loop, you know, and that that would have never happened if I had not had to step outside and do the hip hop stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just that refusal to change can really keep you from succeeding if you're trying to be a songwriter. Uh, number three is forgetting who I'm writing for. Uh, again, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I'm just going to write songs I like. And if people, you know, if people pick them up and want to do them, that's great. And they think that they can make a career as a songwriter, just writing songs they like. And, you know, I think that I like what I write every day, but it's not my, it's not all my preference that goes into it because I realize I'm not writing for me. I'm not the target audience. If I'm trying to be a commercial writer, the target audience is, the person out there working at Walmart or the person, you know, the, the woman taking her kids to school, that's the target audience. And so it can't be all about what I like and, right. and only writing what I like. Yeah. I mean, you have to learn to speak the language of your audience. So um, listening and keeping up with songs that are popular are going to help you with that. And, you know, I honestly think that there's two different tracks um, there's some people that are so artistically brilliant, you know, they were born a Mozart when they were a kid. They, they were just born that way, that they go off and develop this individual style. And it takes a long time, but the world discovers that. And then for two or three years, all the mainstream artists want to record their songs. But then they're gone because they've never changed. That's all they've done. And they do it really well. Um, so if you're a songwriter, being a professional songwriter is more about building a long career. Um, if you think you're going to have two years worth of hits and feed your family for the rest of your life, it's probably not going to happen. So you've got to have a long career, you know, and you've got to you've got to have um, songs that over a couple of decades build a catalog, build a body of work and. So I, that being diverse is the only way that that's really going to happen over the long haul. 
Otherwise, you, you know, and I'm saying if if you're an artist writer and you build a following as an artist, that's one thing, you know, and but even even the successful artists have to continually reinvent themselves. You know, it's I, I think getting stuck into one thing hardly ever works. Yeah. And, and the successful artists are not putting out songs for themselves. They're putting out songs that they think their audience will like. Right. You know, so they, they continually keep in mind that they are not the target audience for that song. You know, that, that the person coming to their concert is who they're trying to reach with that song. And to be successful, they've got to give those people what they want. And so they, they're able to step outside of what they want in every instance. You know, Blake Shelton might go, well, I love these 10 songs, but my audience is going to hate them. So right. he's not going to put those out. You know, he's going to put out yeah. something more aligned with what they want from him. I mean, I think there is a balance. You ultimately, Blake, when he goes to record an album, he does have a list of things he wants to say. Um, you know, things that, he, I mean, he wants to put out something that he believes in and feels, but he wants he wants it to also be put and presented in a way that it's going to resonate with his audience. And then it's like you said, he's going to have songs on there that that fit him and and he loves, but he's also going to have some songs in there that he knows his audience loves, you know. So I think it's kind of this balance of trying to do both that makes an artist a superstar. Right. And and he's not um, he's not putting out songs. I'm not saying he's putting out songs he doesn't like, but he's keep he's trying to find the intersection of songs he loves that his audience will love. Yeah. You know, and we have to as writers, we have to kind of do that, too. We have to we, we have to write things we believe in and we're excited about. But we have to find that where that intersects with the market and how, you know, how an, an artist is going to find that that relates to him or her and their audience as well. Um, number four, I think ignorance of the market is a big thing that keeps songwriters from succeeding. Every now and then I'll run into somebody that says, oh, I haven't, uh, I'm trying to write country music, but I haven't listened to country radio in 25 years. I just hate it. You know, all I like is Merle Haggard and Waylon Jennings, you know, and I go, well, you're probably not going to have any chance of succeeding because you don't know what's going on. You know, when you were imitating that person, your voice got a lot more country. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) No, I mean, I had that exact, you know, conversation with someone in Starbucks one time. They like, they were like, hey, are you Clay Mills and Songtown? I was like, yeah. And then like, let me buy you a coffee. So as we were waiting for the coffee, he was chatting and he was like, I just would give anything to, to write a hit. And I was like, well, what music are you into? And it was like he said, it was all people that it had been three decades since they had had a hit. And so, you know, and he just straight up said he does not like, you know, radio songs. And so how can you write something for that market if you don't like it? You know, it's impossible. Yeah, I had somebody in the past year tell me that their dream cut would be a, a song, one of their songs by, on Conway Twitty. And I, <laughs> and I had to be the bearer of really bad news that Conway Twitty's been dead a long time. I mean, but that's how out of touch they were with where things are. They didn't even know that their favorite artist was dead, you know. So that you really have to understand what's going on currently in the market if you want to be successful and, and maintain any kind of success. 
Now you can um, you can Marty when you sit down you know this that you can sit down and go I want to incorporate some some of the things about that that made a Conway Twitty song what made them great I want to corp- incorporate those into something but it, you've got to incorporate it into something that fits the marketplace today so yeah my my oh sorry go ahead um, and and I like to just think of those as flavors. You know, if you're doing a song today in today's market, but you want to bring in a flavor from this era or maybe a guitar sound that was from a Buck Owens record. I mean, those flavors, they add spice to um, the overall thing, but you're not going to just sound totally like a Buck Owens record and expect to get it played on the radio. Right. And my first number one was must be doing something right on Billy Currington. And we talked about, you know, hey, you know, Conway Twitty used to do these really sexy songs. You know, there hasn't been any of those on the radio. And then we've talked about some R&B kind of feel things that we had were liked. And we kind of put those things together, put those flavors together and did it in a modern way. And, and it worked. Yeah. Um, number five, lack of objectivity about great versus good. I, I think all of us at times think our good songs are great and not being able to tell the difference really holds a lot of people back because um, Clay and I've told this story, but we uh, went to a songwriter festival uh, for a couple years in a row. And there was one guy who would come up to us with the same 10 songs on a, a CD every single year. He'd go, these songs are better than the ones on the radio. I can't, I just have to get them in the right hands. And so instead of writing new songs that were better, he was just trying to pitch these same 10 songs year after year after year because he thought they were awesome. And right. when we listened to them, they weren't awesome, you know? And so his lack of being able to tell but the difference in great and good uh, was really keeping him from succeeding because he thought he'd already written his 10 hits, you know? Yeah, Dave Grohl said one time in an interview, um, it really illustrated this to me, he said that if you're a band, he goes, you. it doesn't matter on your first gig, if you are kick ass on your first gig, the next time you play that club, they'll be lined up around the block. And if they're not lined up around the block, you need to practice, you need to get better, you need to write better songs. You, because people will let you know if you've achieved greatness. Right. It's hard to hide greatness. So, you know, as Steve Martin said, be so good, they can't say no. And I, I really, I've seen it over and over in my career that if you are good, it will get noticed. If you're great, they'll get noticed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, great. If, if, <laughs> That's the whole purpose of what we were just talking about. <laughs> yeah. And if you, you don't have to tell people your songs are great if they're great. No. You know, so if you find yourself out there going you know, these songs are great. These are amazing. These are better than the ones on the radio. They're not. If you're saying those kinds of things, because if, if you truly is great and you play for somebody, they'll tell you that. Right. And it doesn't mean that if you've got something great, that everyone will get it. Um, You know, sometimes you might have to take your greatness around town a little bit and, and have several people hear it, but somebody will hear it. And once one person hears it, Everyone wants it. Like yeah, it's, they all want it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, number six on our list is the party vibe. And 
uh, I've seen so many. I saw one this week of a, a person who got signed to a, their first staff writing deal and they were out partying all night long, you know, celebrating. And so many people get sucked into that vibe of like the, the music business is all about, um, you know, networking. And, and by that, we mean going out drinking at night with people and partying all night long. And, you know, you just can't typically sustain that for a long career. You know, you might be able to go out and celebrate all night long on your getting your first staff writing deal. But a lot of people get sucked into that lifestyle and they they um, justify to themselves that they're they're networking, they're doing a lot of business and they're, they're meeting people. But those people aren't going to remember you the next day, probably, if that's the scenario in which you're meeting them. And I do think that because I've never really thought about this, but now I'm thinking about it in the moment. Every major songwriter I've worked with, but for the most part, they're not going out and partying. And and the people that I knew that partied with the artist, they might get a couple of cuts here and there on albums. They might get a hit every once in a while, but they aren't the big time songwriters. The you know that handful of people that are just dominating um, year after year. They have good families. They're going home at night and they're doing things to take care of themselves so they can show up the next day and write a great song. If you're partying so much, you show up the next day, you're too tired to write your best song. So I'm glad you said that because I never really thought about it. But just thinking about, you know, over my career, over the careers of other people I know that were successful, they generally weren't the big partiers when it came to being songwriters. No, no. So the people, I don't think any of the people I've known who had have had long successful careers as songwriters have been that. I mean, they may go party. They may yeah. go do a show in Vegas and they, you know, post pictures of them partying, that kind of thing. But that's not something they do every night. And, and I've seen a lot of young writers get into this and they're doing that every night. Yeah. You know, and you just can't sustain that. Um, number seven would be lack of business knowledge. You know, I think um, I had a rude awakening when I had must be doing something right. And that I, I came into my publisher after I got a huge check for the first time. And I said, this is awesome. I recouped my deal with this one song. And he said, no, none of, none of that money went to recoup you. And I was like, what, why? And, and I didn't understand how that worked, you know? And, and so I think it's super important to make it your business to learn the business of music. Yeah. Make- it's a, a rude awakening when I remember the first time I'd had a string of hits and I went to renegotiate my deal and they were like, well, you owe us, you know, $250,000. I'm like, these songs just made you over a million dollars. How do I still owe you? 200 like it didn't make sense and and none of that money that they made went to to pay back my debt right and so what kind of system is that so you you know you learn these things i wish i had known ahead of time and that's part of the reason you know at songtown we will do um these courses for business 
It's not one of our most popular courses because it's not sexy to people, but it's probably the most important thing you need to understand when it comes to having a songwriting career is the business side of it. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we really recommend that you educate yourself on the music business and how things work. Um, there's a, a book called The Straightforward Guide to the Music Biz, which um, Kamal Moo wrote, which is a really great book that just kind of gives you the highlights. It doesn't dig in super deep. It's not a long book, but that would be a great place to start. And then there's obviously much longer books you can dig into about the music business as well. Number eight, uh, the get it and blow it mentality. Um Clay, how many songwriters have you known that had a big hit and they went out and just blew it on something big? A boat. <laughs> yeah. Are that 1959 Les Paul gold top, you know, coming in at $65,000. <laughs> it's not going to help them write a better song. Yeah. It's, you know, I counsel younger songwriters all the time. You know, when, if, when you get that first hit, pay off all your debts, put your money in the bank and pretend like you never had a hit. And then when you get the next one, you can celebrate a little bit bigger, but we're not always guaranteed a next one, you know, and, and so many writers act like when they have that first hit or the second one, that they're always going to just keep coming and they, they spend that money. And one of the secrets to succeeding long-term is setting yourself up where if you have a big hit, let that sustain you for several years so that if you don't have another big hit for several years, then you'll be okay. And, and, you know, you can't do that if you just get that money and you go blow it. So I think good money management has hurt a lot of people because they, they have that big hit, they spend all the money, and then it's so long until they have the next hit that they have to quit and go do something else to survive. Yeah. Don't, this is a sore subject with me. I had to learn that lesson. I think sometimes you have that, the universe gives you this first hit. It's kind of like you know, when you're a young golfer, you go out early, you know, one of the first few times you golf and you get a hole in one and you go, wow, this is easy. And then you spend the next 10 years trying to get another hole in one. So I think songwriting can be like that. You know, when you get that first, it's so important. And I didn't do that myself, um, but I learned after that, you know, I had the first hit and then it took a few more years and I learned that, hey, the next one, I'm going to stick some money in the bank. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I paid for three kids, colleges and all kinds of other emergencies out of that first hit just because I put all that money in the bank. Absolutely. And kept my lifestyle like it had been before I had it, you know. Yeah. Tia Sillers, um, how she is she in the hall of fame yet if not she's gonna be she was nominated i know yeah she was nominated um but she told me that when she had her first hit her mom gave her an allowance of like 200 dollars a week and that's all the money she got and she had to pay her rent buy groceries and live on that and her mom saved her she had all that money stuck in the bank um from that song i hope you dance and it you know she she just thanks her mom every day for setting her up like that i'm glad she's not suing her mom like britney spears sued her dad <laughs> control with her money um number nine is holding on too tightly I, I think some people i've seen hold on so tightly to the thing that they do 
um, I knew a guy that wrote um, Western swing music and he was super successful at that until people quit cutting that and he would not stop doing that. You know, he would kept on writing it or the other side of that too, is people that just want to hold on too tightly to ideas or lines in a song, you know, that, that aren't helping the song and, and they're just holding on to it because they love it and they, they will not be deterred from that. Yeah. Stephen King says, you got to be willing to kill your little darlings. Meaning that if there's a line that's not working, toss it, save it for another song. You know, there, there could be a, uh, who was it? Chris Wallen told me one time, the hardest thing is replacing a great line in your song with the right line. And yeah. it, it's so true that, you know, if it's a great line, just pull it aside and use it somewhere else. But if it's my, not right for that song, it's not right. My friend Amy Mayo used to have a notebook where she put down lines I want to use in another song. And if, if a line got thrown out of a song that she had thrown, you know, wanted to put in there, she'll just write it down there. And that helped her feel like it wasn't gone. It wasn't wasted, you know, that it was there for her to use in some other circumstance, but she would acknowledge it just didn't fit this song, you know, didn't make this song better. And I, I think too, something that we learned when we became pros and started writing a lot of songs is you don't get so attached to the little pieces like that. If if I only wrote three songs a year, every line's going to break my heart if I have to remove it. But if you're writing 100, 200 songs a year, then you're really surgically looking for what's going to be right for those songs. Plus, when you write that many songs, you're, you know, you're kind of tired of writing that many songs. So you want your next one to be a, as good as it can be. You know, you have them all to count. Well, in Nashville, we have the the saying, the song is king, you know, and if, we, if we're putting the song first, we're not going to hold on too tightly to any individual line because we're going to do the thing that makes the song the best, even if, if a great line has to go. Hold on loosely. <laughs> That's right. Well, we have to pay a royalty now that... We Probably. Thanks, Clay. <laughs> Great. Um, well, check this out. More. This isn't on the agenda to talk about, but I did a YouTube video um, and played and sang a lick from Beautiful Mess, my own song, and um, YouTube gave me a copyright strike and said that I can't use that song. It's my mm -hmm. song. <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, it's like it's not enough that they they don't pay songwriters what they deserve. But now they're trying to tell me I can't even do my own song. Yeah. I had to fight with Facebook about that one time. They accused me of that with my song. And I just wrote back and said, hey, I wrote this song. I can do it anywhere I want to do it. And yeah, I, I said that, too. And they haven't answered me back. But my video is not allowed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, we got two more things to talk about. Number 10 is not working smart. I, I see a lot of people that are working hard. They're working lots of hours, mm -hmm. but they're not doing things that help them with the big goal. You know, so I talk to people who go, well, my big goal is to get a staff writing deal. And they're writing every day with an independent artist that doesn't even want a record deal and has no chance at a record deal. And I have to explain, you know, those 12 indie cuts are not going to help you get a staff writing deal. You know, you're, right. you're working really hard, but you're not working at things that are going to help you with your goal. And so I think 
making sure that you're working smart and you do the right things is crucial. And that Clay and I deal with those kind of things a lot in mentoring sessions of just helping people figure out what are the right things to be doing uh, to make sure that I'm working smart and I'm working toward my goal. Yeah. I mean, if, if I look at the careers of my favorite writers, like the Ryan Tedders and Ashley Gorley's and, you know, they're doing all the little stuff right when it comes to writing. And so I had this conversation the other day with a songwriter that was in my Melody Masterclass. And one of the techniques we talked about was in each section, your song, the verse, the pre-chorus and the chorus, you don't want to start your melody lines on the same beat. And you listen to the great writers. They don't do that. If the verse comes in on the beat, the pre-chorus comes in after the downbeat, um, and then the chorus will come in with a wind-up before the downbeat. And, and those. this is just one of, you know, hundreds of little things that great writers do. And so I was having a conversation. I'm like, well, I've, you know, been working with you for six months, and you're still doing this. Why are you doing it? And he was like, well, I just, when I'm writing, I don't hear it. And so that, I think that's where you have to really start being a student of the craft and going, okay, I wrote this song, X, Y, and Z, still not right. Let's go back and rewrite that. And I think people are used to rewriting lyrics when they're learning, but I think um, melody is, you know, you've got to fix all those little things in melody as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's all a part of working smarter. Yeah. Um, number 11, and the final one is that people won't collaborate. And, um, Clay and I, we recently had what we call our townie awards where people in Songtown vote for people for different things. And one guy that was voted for co-writer of the year was a finalist for co-writer of the year. Two years ago, told me he would never co-write. He hated co-writing. And he has just, you know, gone on and on to both of us about how it has changed his life mm -hmm. that we talked him out of that stance, you know, because we kept telling him, your songs are good, but they're really dated. You need some fresh voices in there in the room with you when you write. And he has just blossomed and is having so much fun because he's learned how to collaborate and just to acknowledge the need for that. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Clay? Absolutely. I mean, I know who you're talking about. And he told me the same thing. It's just totally changed his life. I mean, not to mention that it can be hard to motivate yourself to write every day. But if you know you've got an appointment, yeah, I got to log on at Zoom at six o'clock tonight because I have an appointment, you're going to show up for that most likely. And so it's a great motivator to keep you writing. Um, and plus, it's more fun. It's more fun to hang out with other people and write a song than wake up and stare at a blank page with your instrument go, okay, well, what in the heck am I going to do today? You know, yeah. it could be a little thing. You might come in and say, Hey, I hear Kenny Chesney's looking for a song and we're and somebody else in the room goes, I like that, you know, so-and-so beat, you know, it had this cool beat on this record here. Let's try to do something with Kenny and kind of do in that direction, you know, let's lean that way. And then all of a sudden you've got a focus, you've got direction, and there's, you know, purpose to what you're doing. And it's hard sometimes to come up with all of that when you're just writing by yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another aspect that a lot of people don't think about is that 
it's more fun to succeed with a team than it is by yourself in many ways. You know, I think about at my number one parties, the, the, uh, the conversations, you know, one, one of them, one of my co-writers came up and said, man, there's 500 people in this room to celebrate a song that we wrote. We did this, you know, and that was a really cool and special bond between us uh, that we had that experience together. And so I think there's just a thousand reasons why collaborating can really help you be successful long-term and, and very, very few songwriters write everything alone. You know, that's, that's a big exception to the rule. And if you are new to co-writing or if you just want to get better at co-writing, Marty and I had a book come out uh, last year called Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing. And it's been doing really well and it's helped a lot of people kind of master that art. So check it out if you're interested in co-writing. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I hope that that list has been helpful to you. Um, we hope you'll check out Songtown and that you'll follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. And there's links in the show notes to that book Clay mentioned, also to a new one he just uh, put out called um, Mastering Melody Writing, which is a great book as well. So um, we will see you next Tuesday. Thanks for stopping in. Cheers. All right. Hope you found that helpful. Uh, As always, we want to leave you with a song. This song is called Child of Mine by Bill Goo, who is a Songtown member. And uh, we invite you to check out songtown.com online. You can give us your email, get uh, 10 free videos to kind of see a little bit about what Songtown is all about. Uh, But it's a great place to meet and connect with other writers to learn how to write better and to get your music heard. So until next week, we'll say goodbye. One night, as I knelt to pray, I asked the Lord, will there come a day when you take your love away? He said, no, 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 no. If I go down to the deep, Travel far across the sea. Lord, would you forget about me? He said, No, 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 no. Oh, child of mine, you are precious in my eyes. Then this old heart was wandering. Lord, would you forsake me then? He said, No, 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 no. Oh, child of mine, you are precious in my eyes.
No.